Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to, uh, to Bible class, and uh, we'll get started here with an opening prayer. I know where I stand. All right, we're going to pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you have dealt well with your servants. Because, O oh Lord, you have dealt with us according to your word. Teach us good judgment and knowledge, for we believe in your commandments. Before, uh, we were afflicted and we went astray. But now, because we have your forgiveness, your mercy, and we have your promises, we keep your word, which teaches us your law and your gospel. You are good and you do good, please teach us your statutes. The insolent may smear us with lies, but with our whole heart, we will keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but we delight in your law. It is good for us that we were afflicted, that we might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to us than thousands of gold and silver pieces and anything that this world can offer. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we are now on Romans 3. We are cruising. Um, my goal today is to get through eight verses. And that might be ambitious. We'll see. So Romans 3, we'll start with verses 1 through 4. Paul writes, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews are entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So what advantage does the Jew have? You know, as, as, as Paul, a, a Jew and a Christian, uh, deals with this congregation that is largely Gentile uh, in uh, Rome, he's, he's asking the question, what is the advantage? What, what, uh, what difference does it make? And, and he says, hey, there is actual real value in, in this Jewish upbringing. There is actual real value in being part of God's covenant people. So at the same time, we remember from last week, as he was talking about circumcision and uncircumcision, the value of circumcision is not about any kind of a physical procedure. But circumcision is the mark of the covenant. Circumcision became the, the sign that these were God's people. And so because they have the covenant, there is great value in, in that relationship. Because they are God's chosen people. 
They are the children of Abraham. Abraham who was given a promise that through your seed, all nations will be blessed. It's a, it's a prophecy about the coming Messiah. So when Paul responds to this question, what, what, what's the value of being a Jew? What, what is the value of circumcision? He says much and in every way. There's great value in this. But I find it interesting that he, he only focuses on one thing. He says there's, there's lots of advantages to being Jewish. Like, you know, duh. But there's only one thing that he's going to talk about. And, and he says, first, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Notice that this is passive. It is receptive. The, the advantage of being Jewish is not rooted in um, the great things that they accomplished. It's not rooted in uh, the, the conquest of uh, any particular people or, or anything like that. It is that they have received something. And what they've received is oracles. Um, when I was translating this, I, I got myself a little bit confused because, uh, partly because of the passive verb, um, because the, uh, the, the word there, um, if it weren't a passive, it would mean that they believed. But because it's a passive, it means they were entrusted with. Um, and then the word that's translated oracles uh, is related to the word word. So I got it wrong the first time through. That's why I always double check it. Um, but uh, I went through it and I was like, oh, what's the advantage? Well, they believe the word. Well, that sounds kind of like an active thing. You know, yep, we figured it out and I believe and I've got the word and therefore I'm pressing on. But that's not, that's not what it actually says. It means that God entrusted them with oracles which is related to the word. But when we start talking about oracles, uh, we think of wise sayings that are often predictive. So what did God predict to these Jewish people that is so important? Any thoughts? Messiah. Yeah, that the Messiah would come. The, the, of all of the things that people get excited about, you know, um, I, I don't remember who I was talking about with this recently, but they mentioned that they had, uh, they had seen the Da Vinci Code. I, you know, I read the Da Vinci Code years ago, um, and there are all these different Bible code things, you know. Look at all the things you can figure out by reading the, the Bible, and you can interpret it in this way, and, you know, and we can predict the future. But the thing that God predicts over and over again is, I will save my people. I will send the Messiah. I will forgive sins. I will take this fallen, broken, dead creation, and I will recreate it in Christ, and I will raise the dead. Over and over again. Those, those are at the heart of his promises. And he says, for the Jewish people, 
this is their first and greatest advantage because they have had this promise from the beginning. They are the ones who carried the account of how we fell into sin. They are the ones who received the promises that God would send a savior. They are the ones who recorded those promises and passed them on from generation to generation so that we could receive them today. And I look you know, at the, this Roman congregation that, that Paul is writing to, and there were Jewish people in Rome, uh, and, and there are Gentile people there, um, and he wants to make it clear, these are people who have lived with these promises for a long time, and thanks be to God that they carried these promises. And as I look out at this room, I'm guessing that most of us come from Gentile stock. And thanks be to God that these promises have been handed down from generation to generation, that they have been fulfilled in Jesus, and that God's people then have carried these promises, this word, these oracles forward, so that we could know the, the oracles of God for us. His wisdom and his, uh, uh, his message of forgiveness and life and salvation delivered to us. Today, um, I sometimes like to quip that you know my family is Germanic, so you know the whole Thor Odin thing. You know, there is a little bit of a personal part of that because I'm pretty sure that I had relatives at one point, if you go far enough back, that were you know either them or they were just praying to trees, <laughs> because that's what the Northern Europeans did until I believe it was St. Boniface came down and, or came up and, uh, and, and they said, yeah, we prayed to this oak tree. And said, That's fantastic. Give me my ax. You know, and he, he proclaimed the gospel to them. And you know, this passing of the word, it, it's, it's hugely, hugely important. Um, I've been opening all of these with bits of Psalm 119 and, and kind of using those as a, as a prayer. But I think that this, as we speak about the wisdom of God, these oracles that are given to us, I think Psalm 119 is greatly reflective of meditating upon these promises that, that God has made to us. So I, I put some words in italics this time. Uh, as you go through, just take a look at you know, how many things he goes back to about how God communicated to the psalmist, or, or more broadly, to us. In verse 65, it, it talks about, you know, according to your word. And, and then in verse 66, he talks about your commandments. 67, again, your word. 68, your statutes. 69, your precepts. Uh, six, or 70, your law, and we'll come back to that word because uh, there's, there's some interesting stuff with that. Um, it's 70, your, your statutes, again. Um, sometimes it, it will talk about your deeds. It will, it will talk about uh, your history. And basically, it's just retelling what God has done and what he has promised to do. Now, I, I said we'd come back to that word law. The word law in Hebrew is the word Torah. Um, 
and uh, almost all words in Hebrew come from a, a verbal root. So they take verbs and then they kind of morph them into nouns. The root of Torah is the verb to teach. So when it says, you know, um, I delight in your law, it, it, law is the right, the right um, translation, but you can also understand that as we delight in your teaching. And as we talk about God's teaching, now this expands bigger than just do this or do that, because it's also talking about God's promises and what God uh, says that he will do for us in order to save us and, and to make us his people. So when we look at his word and we look at these oracles, we will find wisdom. We, we will find wisdom in terms of the law to shape our lives and, and to guide our relationships with one another and, and all of these kinds of things. But as we look at this word and as we look at these um, uh, statutes and, 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 and precepts and all of these things that, uh, uh, that Psalm 119 keeps talking about, we also have God's testimonies, his deeds, his oaths, particularly regarding the Messiah, the Savior. The Messiah, the, the chosen, anointed Savior who would come. So I think that when we look at this question, you know, what advantage do the Jews have? <clears throat> Here, 2,000 years later, I think that this is a question that we need to ask ourselves as we find ourselves more and more on the edge of society. What advantage is there in being a Christian? When you go back to the early, early church, what advantage was there to being a Christian in terms of society? None. And then somewhere you know, in the 300s, Constantine uh, makes, the, uh, makes Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, for which we should thank God. Um, when, you, when, you, when you follow around like my circles on, on Twitter and Facebook, you know, what's, you know, they, they complain about this, you know, because then all sorts of um, bureaucracy came into the church. And yeah, there were problems that are related, there are problems that are related to being the state religion and to being kind of the center of society. That being said, it's really a good thing to not be executed just because you're a Christian. So I think that it is good and right to thank God uh, for Constantine and, and what he did. But I'm looking all these years later at a society that is moving further and further from um, Christianity. We are becoming less and less influenced by uh, our, our Christian ethics. Which I want to maybe say that might be okay. Because is Christianity all about ethics? Right. I, I, I think that part of the reason that we are going through this is because Christianity, in some ways, at least here in America, has become more about ethics, and, and not always actually Christian ethics, by the way. Um, sometimes it's our worldly ethics, you know, kind of baptized and made to look Christian-y. Um, uh, but uh, uh, it's become more about behavior than it is about grace. 
that our focus is more on looking out at the world and saying all the things that they're doing wrong rather than on what Christ has done about that. Um, and uh, uh, you know, so when we look at what is the value of being a Christian today, what is the advantage of being a Christian today? I think at one point there was a real advantage of being a member of a church and being known as a Christian in a society and that that would give you connections within the society that would make your life easier and maybe even better. And it's either gone or quickly going away. You know, I remember when I was a kid, um, my dad worked at the local uh, plant, one of the local plants, and um, a new plant manager came into town, and he was Lutheran. And there were two Lutheran churches in town. And uh, so then the question was, oh, which one will he go to? Manistee is a small town, okay? So this is kind of a big deal. You know, there's this influential person coming into the community. You know, where will he go? And, um, and, and he, he uh, came to Trinity, where I went, oops, sorry. Um, and, uh, and everybody was all excited, oh, he's here, he's here. And then somebody came alongside him and said, well, really, if you want the better business contacts, you need to go over here to Good Shepherd. And for a while, that's what he did. And, you know, uh, Bill was a great, great guy and a devout Christian and, uh, um, and he got tired of church being about business contacts and he came back to Trinity. Um, because nobody great came out of Trinity. Are you kidding me? <laughs> but uh, um, why do you go to church? Because there, you know, somebody at least had the idea that you go there to make contact with other people in order to be able to do business. That's not what church is about. That's not the advantage of being a Christian. And I don't think Good Shepherd's that way, but that was his experience. You know, um, so, uh, so what advantage do Christians have in today's world? I think we need to learn this response that was the same question for the Jews. Well, what's the advantage for the Jews? Much, and in every way. Because first and foremost, we have been entrusted with the oracles of God. Especially, especially the message of 1 Corinthians 15. This is one of my favorite passages in the whole New Testament. And, and in 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open up to it just because I, I want to make sure I don't get it wrong. Um, but uh, in 1 Corinthians 15... Paul starts talking about the thing that is of first importance. You know, hey, here, this is, this is the main thing. And, uh, and he writes, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So we have both of these things going on. Paul is recognizing, I've received this. I've received the oracles of God. And then I'm taking that and I am delivering it to you. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that'd be Peter, um, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. 
Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That's our message. Christ crucified and risen. That's what we have that is significantly different than anything that the world offers. We have the Word made flesh who dwelt among us and who continues to dwell among us with the presence of His Spirit coming to us in the Word and in the sacraments. What advantage is there to being a Christian? Much and in every way because we have the Spirit of God and we have forgiveness and life and salvation. And friends, that's a big deal. Because I would argue that forgiveness is something that is, uh, it's a rare commodity in today's culture. And I think that this is something that, that we need to maybe wrap our minds around a little bit better than we have in the past as Christians. That at the heart and the core of who we are, there is forgiveness. And then forgiveness influences behavior. And that forgiveness actually changes us as God works in us. Any thoughts, comments, questions before I move on to the next thing here? So Paul asks, well, what if some people were unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness nullify the, the, the faithfulness of God? His response there, uh, by no means, uh, it, it's, it's a little bit of a colloquialism. It's, it's actually a very strong statement. It's like, if you translate it very literally, it's, it cannot happen. But it's a lot like, you know, if somebody says something to you and you just respond, no way! You know, it's, it's a very, very bold, you know, kind of, you know, retort, you know, so, you know, if someone were unfaithful, does that mean that, you know, God's faithfulness is nullified? No, you know, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very strong response. He says, this is why our focus is best focused on God and rather than ourselves. So, you know, as I've been thinking about uh, this reading through, um, can we find signs of, of unfaithfulness in the church today? Yeah. Yeah, and um, one of the areas that uh, has kind of come across my radar screen very recently here is the issue of racism, critical race theory, um, and the gospel. Um, again, I, I, I'm... I'm I'm looking out at my, my social media feed from time to time, uh, trying to limit this a, a bit. Um, but sometimes it's such a dumpster fire that you, how do you not watch? Um, and, uh, and one of the things that I'm noticing is that, you know, there are real issues in our society and in our country with racism right now. And they are part of the life of the church. 
And I'm also noticing that as people respond to the very valid concerns about racism in the church, that their retort is um, regarding this philosophy called critical race theory, um, which is kind of a form of, of Marxism. Um, so Marxism gives us communism, which is really this idea that, that we're all divided because of our economic status and there's oppression that is related with the haves and the have-nots, and, and that is a gross oversimplification. Um, but uh, it's the same kind of idea. There is this division and of, of power based on your skin color, and, and, and it leads to oppression and, and, and all these other things. And, and, and like Marxism, uh, Marxism actually points out some real injustices, but it comes to the wrong conclusions. And I would argue, from what I've seen of critical race theory, it points out you know some real problems, you know, that uh, you know racism isn't one-sided for one thing, you know, it it exists across skin colors. It's not a it's not a predominantly only white thing. Travel the world, it, it exists everywhere. It's part of our our, our broken humanity. That being said, do we then nullify the complaints of people who have experienced injustice because of their skin color? No. You know, so are we free to recognize that racism exists and it's a problem and that there are theories about race and victimization that are wrong and that are a problem. Yeah. yeah we're free. What's that? I said, I say yes, we're free, but we also face ramifications by being free to love each other. Because yeah. if you're loving someone other people don't love, then they're going to turn on you because they want to keep it going. Yeah, and I think that that's an important point because when you look at um, when you look at, at what Jesus does for us uh, in terms of all of these things that bring division into our lives and into our relationships, um, he brings a reconciliation that we would love one another, and yeah, there will be people outside of that who will not embrace that and will not accept it. I, I, I look at what's happening in the church in terms of people, you know, who just want to push back and say, you know, racism is a problem out there. Uh, sorry, no. And the people who then want to obfuscate and, and say, you know, well, what we need to do is, is bring in these other philosophies. No, we have what we need in Jesus. We need to relearn how to apply these things. We need, uh, the book of Colossians is, is a great example of this. You have a, a, a community that is divided uh, ethnically. And the whole thing is all about, guess what people, you're in Christ. That is your uniting principle. And that means that you're going to deal with yourselves differently than you have in the past. And you're going to recognize where your sinfulness has led to, you know, hurt and, and, and pain in that relationship, and you're going to work through it together because you are the body of Christ. But it doesn't happen if you just, nope, nope. You know, 
we have to learn how to lean into these things and apply Jesus' grace into these relationships. And it's, it's not always easy. It's simple, but it's not always easy. Question? Yeah. It seems to me what we're avoiding in this whole racial discussion is the fact that it's just another form of sin. And what's the difference in that between someone who uh, dislikes somebody else because they cut them off on the road? You know, or they dislike somebody who because they do something that you disagree with. And so you you Yeah, um, so on one hand, are all sins equal? Yeah. Um, my, my little white lie uh, is every bit as damnable as, uh, um, uh, as murder. Um, you know, in, in, the, in the grand scheme of you know, God's justice. However, as we experience sin, um, it will impact us differently in different situations. So, when I become angry at somebody on the road um, and harbor hate for that person in my heart because they cut me off or, or whatever, that really doesn't have any impact on them. Even, even if I've become so angry that I flip them the bird, you know, maybe they have a little bit of angst and upset and, um, you, know, you know, but that's it. Racism is different in the sense that it has um, much deeper impact on the individuals who are on the receiving end of it. Because in a lot of ways, um, it is systematized. And you know, when you have clusters of people who uh, have authority and have power, and you have other groups of people who are marginalized by the people who do have authority and power, um, then great damage is done. Uh, it, it is also, um, it, it brings uh, a dehumanization. You know, the guy that I get mad at on the road, I look at them and say, you know, idiot, yes. Human, mostly. But in, in, in a lot of the racism stuff, you know, they would look at these people and say that they are lesser than human. You know, and, uh, um, and therefore they become a commodity uh, to be traded in and used uh, for the benefit of others. And that can happen to anybody, you know, um, depending upon where you're at. But we have a, a, a we have a, a manifestation of that that tends to impact in a negative way people who have brown skin, you know, and uh, you know, and I think that as a church we need to recognize that and deal with it. Um, but that doesn't mean that 
the world has the right answers. I believe that we have the right answers given to us in Jesus in terms of how we deal with one another and recognizing the uh, incredible image of God that is given to every one of us, no matter how marred it is by our original sin. Does that make sense? Sharon? Yeah. Teaching and law. Just to kind of clarify this, some of this with, with racism or animism, that becomes implemented in human positive law. So that what, what do you mean by positive, positive law? law? All of the laws are promulgated. Okay. Or court law. So sometimes these things become part of our public law. there's any kind of objective yeah. law and, that's out yeah, there. Yeah, there is a, what is unseen and can't really be promulgated by human beings and their limitations. Yeah. That is what's real. Yeah. yeah, Ellen? I hate to see these churches closed. Do you think that has anything to do with gun violence? I mean, as children, we were taught this song, you know, red or yellow, black or white, all the questions in the sight, Jesus loves the little children of the world. Yes. 
So I, was your question, churches closed being related to gun violence? Is that what I... Yeah, I mean, those churches are closing all over, so they don't get this, you know, you can't one another thing, you know, they just go out and two people. For the pandemic, a lot of churches closed. Yeah, there are a lot of churches that are closed even within our community. Um, I, I think that this tends to deal more with the relationship with the government and uh, the, the mandates that have been uh, given and, uh, and interpreted in, in a variety of ways. Um, did you know that Ohio never required any churches to close? You know, so, you know, we made some choices based on what we understood and, and, and what was going on. Um, but uh, um, other states did make that choice to force their, uh, their um, congregations, their churches uh, in the communities to close. And some churches complied and others did not. And, uh, and if I'm smiling at that, I'm kind of proud of some of those churches that defied uh, their governments and continued to proclaim the gospel. Um, on the other hand, I look at some of the churches and say, you're acting like a bunch of knuckleheads. Uh, <laughs> It, it's a hard thing. Um, the gun violence thing, um, I, I have not seen that impact churches uh, so much. Uh, but um, is it a problem within our, our society? Uh, definitely. Um, I, I think that, uh, that we are living in a society that does not value human life. And I want to be very clear that this is not new. Cain killed Abel because he was upset that God didn't treat his sacrifice the same way. Um, I was listening to uh, the Christian History Almanac this morning, and they were talking about the Roman Empire and how at one point the Roman Empire um, crucified 6,000 slaves and they lined them up along the road between Rome and another city just to make a point. You know, so the idea that we don't value human life and that we treat people as though they are other than human is a big deal. Um, there's, a, there's a good book, I think the author's name is Alan Jacobs, or maybe it's just Alan Jacob, uh, called How to Think. And in that book he talks about uh, treating people as the repugnant cultural other, which is, I think, a great turn of phrase. Um, but uh, the idea that you would look at somebody else and they would become repugnant to you because they are other than you. This, this, is, this is part of our problem and it has been because of our brokenness uh, in, in Christianity. And, and I also want to um, say very clearly some of the racism stuff and the critical race stuff that, uh, that I brought up, I'm still thinking through some of this stuff. This has not been part of my experience in my life, um, trying to understand all of these things. I, I grew up, I knew, I knew one black kid growing up. It was my pastor's son. If you go to my hometown, you know, it, it's more diverse now uh, with Hispanic people. And the Native American people that are there are actually saying, we're Native Americans. That was never part of the conversation when I was a kid. So some of this, I'm a little bit of a Johnny-come-lately on it, and, and I'm still kind of thinking through some of this stuff. And I would like to put out that that's, 
okay and that that's actually good. That we wrestle with some of these ideas that maybe we haven't thought about before and might make us uncomfortable and might force us to change our minds about how we have looked at things in the past. Does that make sense? So, um, so if someone were unfaithful because there's problems in the church, does that then nullify uh, the faithfulness of God? No way. God remains faithful. And this is, this is a pretty regular problem that people will, will come to uh, when they talk about the church. They, they, they will say, you know, I hear all this stuff about love and, and everything else, but I just don't see it. That is a problem. But on the other hand, that doesn't nullify that Christ has died and Christ has risen and that our redemption and forgiveness are in him. So we should not allow that to silence us but at the same time, it should lead us into repentance and a re-speaking of the oracles of God, that this is not about us, it's about Jesus. You know, keeping the focus on, on, on the right thing. We have received the promises, forgiveness, the presence. We've received the Holy Spirit. We've received comfort. That One of the names for the Holy Spirit is the comforter. We've received grace, resurrection, everlasting life. There is no one else in the world that can offer these things. And this is why we need to make sure that they stay as part of our focus, our main focus, as the first thing. And as we deal with the world, there are going to be all kinds of different ways that we're going to interact with the world in justice issues, in um, public policy issues, in economic issues, uh, just taking care of your neighbor type of stuff. But at the end of the day, this is what we're about. Forgiveness. And we have to make sure that whatever we do, we get to this. So, we know the faithfulness of God through his faithfulness to Israel. We look at what he has done and recognize that he has promised and he has kept promises and he continues to promise and will keep promises. So think through the story of Israel. He chose a family. He chose Abraham. Why? I don't know. And he never says. He chose Abraham. He says, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. Go to a land that I'm going to show you. And they, he goes. Abraham never owns the promised land. The only part of the promised land that he owns is a bit that he bought in order to bury Sarah. That he himself would later be buried in. That's it. And then the people, you know, if, if you know the book of Genesis, they, they, the, the family grows. You go from Abraham to Isaac uh, to Jacob, and the family's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. They end up down in Egypt uh, because of a famine, and Joseph is like, you know, number two in the land, which has a whole lot of backstory to it. And after some time, they become slaves. 
in Egypt. And God says, you know, I'm going to, you know, bring you out of that slavery. He promised that even before they were slaves. He brings them up. He leads them into the promised land. He establishes a monarchy, despite the fact that that was never you know, what he desired for them, that he is their king. And so they want a, a physical king and, and they have this relationship of rebellion against God. And as he gives them monarchs, he also gives them prophets. They live a life into apostasy, breaking God's law left and right. They get sent into exile. And in exile, they refine their faith and they reconnect with God's promises and his oracles and they return. God brings them back. He keeps his promises. We see that over and over again as we look at, at, at the account of, of, of the scriptures. And so Paul answers this question about God being unfaithful. He says, no, no, God is true. People are liars. So we're going to trust what God says, and we're going to be a little bit skeptical about what anything that people say. And, and I would point out again that, again, he's talking about truth, that there's some objective truth that's out there that's rooted in who God is and what God has done. So he says, let God be true and all men liars, and he, he speaks about a scripture verse as it says that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And this is a reference to Psalm 51, verse 14, and we have some textual uh, strangeness again. Because if you look up in your English Standard Version, um, Psalm 51, verse 4, it says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Does that sound familiar, by the way? Where, where do we run into that verse with some regularity? Yeah, this is part of our confession that we use. We use God's word in our liturgy. It's pretty cool stuff. So, uh, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Paul says, prevail when you are judged. Psalm 51, verse 4 in the ESV is translated, blameless in your judgment. Now, I, I keep coming back to translation because translation is actually a very important point. Um, translation is always the first step in interpretation. It's always the first step in understanding what is being said. And there's a very important um, it, Maxim that's out there that all translators betray the text. There's always going to be some way that, that we're going to struggle with what the text is saying. So the English Standard Version says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And so I went back and I looked at Psalm 51, verse 4 at the Hebrew, and I was like, that, that, that's actually a pretty good translation of the text. Paul's quoting the, the Greek translation again, the Septuagint, which honestly is also a very excellent translation of the text. There is a little bit of ambiguity in how you should translate this. 
So he says you're justified in your words. That's exactly the same in both texts. And then you will overcome, be victorious, or prevail in your judgment. That word judgment in the Hebrew is an infinitive verb which can function as a noun in Hebrew. So does this mean that God is the one proclaiming judgment? As in, uh, I have sinned and done evil in his sight and therefore he is clean or vindicated when he judges me as a sinner? Or does this mean that God is the one receiving judgment? As in, I have sinned and done what is evil in his sight, and therefore he is clean, he's vindicated when I complain that his judgment is unfair. You see the difference? And my answer to which one is right is yes. They both make sense, don't they? And they both kind of get you to the same place. But I think that Paul, by using the Septuagint here, is bringing out a pretty important idea. Do people ever judge God? All the time, yeah. Yeah, why would God, why would God do this to me? You know, or why would he allow a storm to, you know, rip up Mississippi and, uh, and Louisiana? Or why would he allow that earthquake to happen? Or why would he allow, you know, a child to be born into poverty? You know, make your list. It's like this is, this is, this is our hobby is judging God. My God would never do something that God actually said that he would do. What's the result of judging God? We find ourselves... Go ahead. If something happens, you can look at it as some kind of attention getter or interference of God, and you can take it positive. What am I supposed to learn from this? Or what is God preparing me for? Um... And I guess that's a form of anger, anger in a way, but it's sort of in a positive way. You're still trusting God. Yeah, you're still kind of saying, what, what, you're, you're still kind of saying what, what God allowed to happen to me is, you know, I'm unfair. Mad. Yeah, I'm mad at him. Yeah. I feel like we're putting ourselves in place of God, like higher than God. We know more. We know better than you do. Yeah. You shouldn't have done this. Can you think of a theological term for that? Yeah, what was that? idolatry. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's what I was thinking about the first commandment. Yeah, because then I'm God, and I can judge everything else. And I think Paul, he keeps well. I I think that this is part of the uh, the genius of, of, of Martin Luther when he did the Catechism. Um, that everything goes back to the first commandment, and I think that the reason that Luther does that is because Paul keeps driving us there. It keeps pointing us to, to that. Um, Pastor, can I ask one question? Certainly. You're saying it could be idolatry? Yeah. The complaint is it idolatry? We, we I think it can be. We, are you saying 
We can't talk back to God. Oh, I didn't say that at all. Because that's what I was trying to portray. No. You're accepting what you're you're accepting your consequence or whatever it is, okay? It's not that you're doubting God. But it's you know it's a rough time or whatever. And you're still believing. But I don't see I don't what do you mean by the idolatry? What I mean is that uh, we place ourselves above God as his judge, and therefore we make ourselves to be God. Okay. And, or a God, I should say. We're not always judging God, though. I think we're, we're, you can go along with God, and you have no choice, but I don't know if it's always going to fall into idolatry. Maybe. I, I think that maybe we need to become more comfortable with the idea that we're sinners that rely completely and totally on him for forgiveness and salvation and less on how well we cope with what happens to us in our lives. To be comfortable with the fact that sometimes we look at God and say, I think he's abandoned me. Even though in the back of my head I'm trusting in his promises. That we feel you know, that if I had been in control of this, I would have done it better. Okay. But then I'm going to confess that, God, I am trusting in you. Take a charge. Is that like an idolatry? Yeah, it can be. It can be. When it becomes about me controlling the situation, absolutely. I think that sometimes when we, when we become angry with God, it's True. because we look at him and say, what you did, God, is unfair. Yeah. And I don't think, I think we can do that. He's like our father. Oh, I, I think that we are more than capable of doing that. But that doesn't mean idolatry. Are you? I don't know. I, maybe it's on the verge of it. I, I don't. I think that I know is like your own, like I know better. Yeah. So you're saying, I know better, that's the idolatry. Not you're looking at something else instead of God. It's just like you're that little kid. Like, I know you're my mom and you're telling me this, but I still want to do it because I know better. <laughs> yeah. And I also think that because we are so groomed to be performative in our faith, and this is really at the heart of a lot of American evangelicalism, that it's all about my behavior, that we get a little bit mixed up on this sometimes, that my relationship with God is going to be a, a wrestling. It's going to be difficult. I am going to judge God, and he is going to forgive me, and my hope is that Christ has died for me, and I'm going to wrestle to not judge God the way that, but I'm going to come back to it, and I'm going to break his law, and it's going to bring conflict into our lives, and we're going to complain about God. And again, not new. So um, I'm out of time. I got through four out of eight. 
And I'm okay with that. Hold on, because I really need to wrap up. I really need to wrap up, Shirley. But I want to wrap up with this song. So we're going to wrap up with scripture. We're going to wrap up with scripture because part of the question is, can I complain about God and still live in faith? Psalm 13. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. But it all starts with God, you've abandoned me. That's kind of. Well, I, I just want to say one more thing. We really need to close. not about our performance it's about his mercy let's pray heavenly father i thank you crazy that we could be here today and we ask that you would help us to live in your mercy and that you would strengthen us to be your people by grace we ask it in jesus name amen